So what does a pastor do when his convictions are different than those of his own denomination? It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey friends, this is Michael Brown. We've got a special broadcast today on the line of fire. I'm not catching up with news going on in the world around us. Not talking about the midterm elections, not talking about general Bible theology subjects, not having a Jewish focus, but rather answering some questions, some key emails that have been sent in and some questions that were posted on our Friday broadcast or Q&A broadcast on YouTube and on Facebook. I want to get to as many of those as I can Starting with this one, I'm not going to give all the specific details so that his identity can be completely anonymous, but he says, I'm a young pastor raised in a particular denomination, which is not a charismatic or Pentecostal denomination. He said, I've pastored three churches in that denomination. I'm a believer that holds to the gifts of the spirit still being available to the church today. I came into this belief after some pretty intense spiritual attacks on myself and my family when I was pastoring my first church. I'm at a crossroads on whether to publicly step away from a denomination that does not teach this or continue pastoring these churches and let the word through the Holy Spirit change hearts. I feel like I should be upfront with search committees on my beliefs, knowing that once I do, I'll be blacklisted, if you will, from preaching anywhere. There are also a lot of oneness Pentecostals in the area, which I also don't mind up with. What's a brother to do? Any advice would be greatly appreciated. Keep up the great work. Okay. I want to speak to your situation specifically, but in doing so, others who have to make similar decisions about when their convictions go against their settings, others can be helped as well. Number one, with all respect to your denomination, if you are convinced by the word that the gifts and power of the Holy Spirit are for today, that what was normative in New Testament times is to be normative today, then it's important that you do make that known to others in your midst. And as daunting as that may seem, you have to realize that there's a massive world outside of any one denomination. There's a massive world of, and especially if you're talking about the charismatic Pentecostal world, it's a massive world. It's a rapidly growing world. In fact, the world of those who don't believe that the gifts and power of the Spirit, New Testament gifts are normative today, that's an increasingly diminishing world in terms of numbers and influence. So with all respect to your denomination, it's important that you honor your leaders and that they know who you are and what you believe. Now, what you need to do is pray this through first, talk to your wife about it, just be of one heart so that you know what's coming. And then you speak to whoever your immediate leader is and say, hey, I I want you to know I believe these things. I've not undermined our doctrine from the pulpit. I, I don't try to to upset the apple cart, but you have to understand your denomination, from what I know, is is a sizable denomination. You're not the only person in it that holds to the things you hold to. So I would first go and say, is there room for me in our denomination to hold to these things? If they say you have to do it privately, you have to do it if you speak in tongues, no one can know that. If you believe that that prophecy is for today, no one can know that. This is this is your own private life. Well, that's going to be difficult for you to really live out. 
and you'll be thinking you're doing a disservice to your congregation. And surely people in your congregation will come to you with questions. Pastor, what about this? What about that? Will you be able to answer them honestly? Now, there are some things that you sacrifice for the sake of unity and for a larger cause. For example, when I served as a leader in the Brownsville Revival from 1996 to 2000, I did not believe in a pre-trib rapture. In fact, Dr. Craig Keener and I have a book scheduled to come out in March of, of 2019 uh, called Not Afraid of the Antichrist, Why We Don't Believe in a Pre-Trib Rapture. So we uh, have that view. I've had that view for decades, as Dr. Keener has. But I, I talked to the leaders about it, the other leaders that I'd be serving with in Pensacola, and I made clear I don't divide over these things. So it was my policy, because the pastor of the church believes strongly in a pre-trib rapture, because the main evangelist speaking every night believes strongly in a pre-trib rapture, that I instructed the faculty at our school of ministry, if questions come up about it and you share my views, you don't believe in a pre-trib rapture, when someone asks what the Bible says, you give the different views. And the church teaches this, uh, and others teach this, others teach this. Dr. Brown, what do you believe, the students would say? I'd say, here are the different views. Now, I was totally comfortable doing that for the sake of something larger to be part of a historic outpouring of the spirit that has birthed a missions movement that continues to grow and impact people around the world. Could I do that always in every setting in life? No, but that was one that was worth doing. There's some other things that, that were, were of, of a different style than were my own convictions, but I could live with them for the larger cause. All right. So you have to say to be part of this denomination, to be part of this larger cause, Am I willing to suppress these things? If I were you, I, I absolutely could not. They're a fundamental part of my walk with God and, and important in my ministry to others. So I, I could not. But I will say this. I have lost a lot on different occasions because I couldn't com compromise my convictions be because it was too deep, because it was too earnest, because it was, it was too fundamental. So I, I lost a lot. In some cases, lost almost everything that I had but I've been richly rewarded by God. He has, number one, opened up many, many more doors of ministry over the years. Number two, even where there were separations and breaches, we now minister together because we've honored the Lord and, and done so in humility. In the midst of differences we've had, we've now come to bless one another once again. And then God's my supply. God's my source. Not a church, not a salary, not an organization, not a ministry. You work for God, not for man. If it means for a season that you have to do some secular work while waiting for another door to open, so be it. If it means you plant a brand new church, pray about that, talk to other church planters, hook up with a network and, and do it, plant a church, and then grow a new ministry, that's what the Lord's calling you to do. Or if it's a matter of him calling you somewhere else, God is the one who opens and closes doors. God is the one who backs us and supplies our needs. He's the one who does it. You work for God, not for man. So let that be totally freeing to you. I've lived it out. I have lived it out. I'm not preaching what I don't practice. I have lived it out. So let that be firmly set in your heart. And then here's the other thing. You may have a great experience with other leaders who bless you and love you and honor you and say, hey, it's not gonna work here, but tell you what, it's going to take us six months or a year to get a new pastor in to take your church. Can you agree to keep these things to yourself or not teach aggressively on this during that time or not be divisive? Sure, you agree to that. 
and 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 then you go with blessing and move on and you tell your congregation you feel the Lord's calling you on to other things and other aspects of ministry. And then perhaps at the end, politely say, hey, we just had some differences over these things, but out of respect for the denomination, I need to move on. It may get ugly. You may get called a heretic. Your best friends may turn their backs on you. Your wife may lose her best friends. It, you may get called names. That could happen too. Just remember when it does, it's because people are very passionate about the word and passionate about the things they believe are right. And they immediately are going to associate you with the craziest Pentecostal they've ever seen on the planet and think, oh no, you've gone off the deep end. Uh, you may have some people really sit you down and try to convince you that you're wrong. Well, great. Sit down, look at the word together. Just say whatever the word says, that's what I want. See if they'll agree to that as well. And then uh, show them some of the debates I've done on the subject and say, let's watch these together. All right. So let us know how things go, but be at peace. Be at peace. These are transitions we've all had to go through. Uh, excuse me. Many of us have had to go through. And the price that's paid is more than worth it to walk in freedom before God and a clean conscience. And God will meet your need. You'll look back at this years later, think, I can't believe it seemed like such a big deal. Because it is a big deal right now. But years later, you'll look back and think, it wasn't as big a deal as I thought. All right? So let us know. Let us know how things go. Okay. Let's go over to uh, Joshua on Facebook. In your biblical opinion, Dr. Brown, what would be the strongest passages of scripture that would point to someone being able to, quote, forfeit their salvation? Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 is the main passage I point out. Actually, that's not the main one I would use because it, it, if you read it one way, it would be saying that it's impossible for a backslider to ever repent. Whereas those of us who believe that you can forfeit your salvation say no to the contrary, that if you'll turn back in repentance, God will receive you back. And we see other passages pointing in that direction. I understand Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, more to be saying that if you continue in that state, that there's no repentance. In other words, believing that there's salvation outside of the cross or turning back to Judaism and remaining in that viewpoint, because remember, it's written to Hebrews, to Jewish believers. Uh, but rather than expositing uh, or exegeting Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 now, I would suggest that Hebrews 2 is stronger, where he warns against us drifting away, that Hebrews 3 is stronger, that tells us that, that those who are saved are those who maintain uh, the right heart until the end. Hebrews 4, which addresses the possibility of falling away, and Hebrews 10 beginning verse 26, that says, if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there's no sacrifice for sins remaining. In other words, you bypass the cross, you can't go back to Jewish sacrifices. There's no sacrifice that's going to work. And then it says, and, and I believe the best textual reading is that the person who's done that has, has scorned the blood that once sanctified them, the blood of the cross that once sanctified that person. So they were saved. And now all they can look forward to is judgment. Second Peter 2 is also strong. Second Peter 2 tells us explicitly that for some false teachers and those they led astray, it would be better for them never to have known the truth than once they have known it. And it's clearly talking about people who've come to, to know the Lord Jesus, that it's better that they never knew it than that they knew it and turned away and went back to their folly. So listen, if you're saved and you're always going to be saved and you can't forfeit your salvation, then even if you fall into error and heresy and whatever, it's still better that you were saved because you're going to get in. 
But he's saying, no, it's better that they didn't know the truth ever because the judgment on them and their fate is going to be even worse, even more severe. Colossians 1 tells us that God will present us blameless and faultless if we continue in the faith. John 15 says that those that don't abide in the vine, the branches that don't abide in the vine are cut off and burned in the fire. So these are a number of passages that would clearly point in this direction. And then Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2 that if, if we don't believe, God remains who he is. In other words, our unbelief doesn't cause him to cease to exist. But it also says if we deny him, he will deny us. That remains a truism. All right. I hope that's helpful. Those are verses off the top of my head that I think would be some of the most effective to use. We could also argue in Revelation when Jesus says, I won't plot you out of the book, that some will be plotted Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks so much for joining us today on the Line of Fire. This is Michael Brown. As always, delighted and blessed to be with you. If you're just tuning in, I'm answering some key emails that I wanted to address personally and some Facebook questions, YouTube questions, comments that were posted during our QA show on Friday. So the world may be boiling all around us, but we're not focused on the world today. If you want to get my latest commentary and major breaking news, we have articles going up normally five days a week, sometimes even more. But on average, I write between four and five new articles a week. If you're connected with us on Facebook or on Twitter, as soon as we see the articles posted, we put up a link for you so you can check them out. And then we've got our new videos every day. So hopefully you're taking advantage of the resources you say, how, how can I know I don't miss anything? Well, go to askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org, and sign up. Just take a minute. If you can do it, don't, not, not while you're driving. Not while you're driving, all right? But as soon as you have a, a moment, go there, askdrbrown.org, or sign up for our emails. And we've got a great free mini book to send you an ebook, A Seven Secrets of the Real Messiah, which is an eye-opening read, excerpted and adapted from my Real Kosher Jesus book. And that little mini book reflects decades of thought and prayer and study about Jewish outreach concepts and thoughts based on scripture and Jewish tradition. So it's free. AskDrBrown.org. Sign up for our emails and we'll send you the free ebook. Uh, okay, let's see. Uh, on YouTube, Giorgio asked, what does the silver cord and golden bowl mean in Ecclesiastes chapter 12? Uh, Ecclesiastes 12 is an extraordinary passage that describes getting old. Now, I, I personally feel tremendously young and vibrant and, and full of, of energy and, and life and feel in many ways like I'm getting younger. I mean, there's nothing I want to do that I can't do uh, because of my age. Uh, there, well, I, obviously, I can't go to elementary school, you know, unless I identify as six. Okay, but you get my point. I'm vibrant, full of health and energy and play sports and work out and do everything and travel and push around the clock and feel renewed and reinvigorated and all of that. Nonetheless, you live long enough, you're going to age. Yeah, Ecclesiastes 12, the older you get, it's like, oh, okay. 
and all the more reason to take care of ourselves as best as we can while we have the opportunity. But to get to your question, we're, we're not entirely sure. The, the imagery is beautiful and poetic, but we're not entirely sure. Ecclesiastes 12, I'm going to read from a translation you may not hear as much as the New Jewish Publication Society version. So appreciate your vigor in the days of your youth, or most would translate, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Before those days of sorrow come and those years arrive, of which you'll say, I have no pleasure in them. Before sun and light and moon and stars grow dark and the clouds come back again after the rain, when the guards of the house become shaky, some say that, that refers to, to the arms, and the men of valor are bent as persons stooped over, and the maids that grind grow few, that the teeth, uh, they grow few, they're idle, and the ladies that peer through the windows grow dim, as that speak about looking out through the eyes, and the doors to the street are shut, can hear, when the noise, with the noise of the handmill growing fainter, and the song of the bird growing feebler, and all the strains of music dying down, when one is afraid of heights, and there's terror on the road, for the almond tree may blossom, the grasshopper be burdened, and the caper bush may bud again, but man sends out for his eternal abode with mourners all around in the street before the silver cord snaps and the golden bowl crushes. The jar is shattered at the spring and the jug is smashed at the cistern and the dust returns to the ground as it was and the life breath returns to God who bestowed it. We don't really know. In other words, what in that text is telling us exactly what it means? What in the ancient Near Eastern background is telling us anything? So let's, let's say I was, I was studying this out, okay? And I was trying to dig. So what I would do, I'd, I'd, look at, I'd look at the words. I'd see, do they occur in other contexts? Does that, does that help me understand something? Is, is there a, an imagery that has a specific meaning? Then, then say I, I, I go to a, let's say I want to look at Jewish commentary, right? So I, I go to the website sfaria.org. Now it's, you've got a ton of stuff right there, S-E-F-A-R-I-A. A lot of it's just in Hebrew, Aramaic, but much of it in English translation. Okay, so. Then I go to, so I go to, uh, hang on, let me get to the right place where I can get to my chapters here. Come on, the wrong book here. Okay, um, so I would go there and I'd click on the sources there and I'd look at all the rabbinic commentaries and see, okay, are there, is there anything there that's giving me insight? Uh, I'd, I'd pull up uh, my Lagos software where I've got tons and tons of commentaries. Let's say I'm looking for, is there, is there ancient Near Eastern background that would help me out? So I'd, I'd look at the, the volume co-authored by John Walton, the Bible background commentary, the Old Testament. I'd see, is, is, there, is there ancient imagery there? So I'll, I'll do it as we're talking, okay? I'll type in Walton and go to the IVB Bible background commentary. And maybe there's some ancient Near Eastern imagery that'll help me, okay? And then I type in Ecclesiastes 12 and what I find is uh, one line of interpretation sees a physiological illusion in each of these lines. Verse two, slight dimmed, depressed, sight dimmed. Verse three, trembling hands, stooping posture, losing teeth, cataracts. Verse four, loss of hearing, awakening early. Verse five, increased fears, gray white hair, slow movements, decreased sexual drive. Verse six, weakened spinal cord, deteriorated mental powers, loss of bladder control, heart failure. All right, so that's really seems like it's reading a lot in, but could that be that the silver cord is speaking of the spine and, and, and the golden jar breaking, speaking of deteriorated mental powers. 
So here's uh, what Walton and the commentators say. To see the golden bowl as a reference to the brain would be unlikely since in the ancient world they were unaware of the function of the brain. Could the silver cord be the aorta and the golden bowl the heart? The fact that no one can say shows the speculative nature of the whole line of interpretation. So as I say, we're not sure. These are possibilities. These are possibilities, but we're simply not sure. Um, okay, this is from, all right, this first initial A. When is your book on music and worship coming out? I'm really looking forward to it. Oh, yeah, okay. You might say, you wrote a book on music? Yeah, yeah. It's called The Power of Music. It comes out January 8th. In fact, just talking to a worship leader or two and songwriter about maybe setting up maybe the second week of January or part of the first week, something where the whole week I just do a special interviews with worship leaders and musicians and, and psalmists and things like that. And we'll have a special music focus. But yeah, I wrote a book on it and got some great endorsements from different folks some some well-known worship leaders, a professor at Oxford University, just wide range of people really enjoying the book. I really felt stirred by the Lord to write it. I researched heavily. So it, it goes through the history of, of music. It goes through, say, classical music and how it's been used in ama the amazing story of Handel's Messiah. It goes through rock music and its influence. It, it goes through folk music and civil rights protest songs and even music and communism. It, it talks about how heavy metal use, music has been used for psychological torture. It goes through hip hop rap and the impact it's had on culture. And then it gets into scripture and what scripture says about music and then different ways that we can use music as a revolutionary tool and as a theological tool. So uh, I'm, I'm psyched just because I had to get the last of the endorsements in today. So I just got a few more this week that were really terrific. So it comes out January 8th, and God willing, the week it comes out, we'll have a special package with maybe some of these interviews with some of the, these worship leaders and songwriters that I've mentioned. So anyway, just uh, you can wait for it. I'm, I'm eager to see it out and so thrilled to see people want to use it in their schools of worship and things like that. So January 8th, yes, I wrote a book on the power of music. You say, why? Well, Music had a very heavy impact on my life before I was saved. The whole rock scene is what opened the door for me to drugs and rebellion and all of that. And then when I got saved, just little gospel music in the little church, God revealed his love and the joy of the Lord touched me dramatically. So I understand the power of music and how it can be used and what can be redeemed and et cetera. So, uh, and I've, I just found that, well, I didn't find it. I didn't find it. A friend sent me an amazing quote about contemporary music that is not what you think it is that I'm going to save for that week when the book comes out. Uh, okay, Dust Green's thing on YouTube. Can I cast lots today in order to make life decisions? The lot is cast into the lot, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. Well, the only New Testament incidents we have of that is Acts chapter one, where they're uh, deciding whether Justice or Matthias will be the 12th apostle to take the place of Judas. We know that John Wesley, regularly drew straws, so to say, cast lots, you know, whatever the thing was to, to say, okay, if the one I pull out is the, the shortest, the longest, there are different methods of, of quote, casting lots. Uh, I would not do it personally. I would feel very odd if I didn't know that I knew on the inside what was a right or wrong decision. 
In other words, I, I feel with the Holy Spirit within me, with, with God leading us and guiding us, that if something's not explicitly addressed in scripture or by scriptural principle, that as one of Jesus' sheep, I can hear his voice, and that what he needs me to know as I seek him earnestly, he will lead me into. I may just know on the inside this is right. I might know on the inside that's wrong. That being said, it is in the book of Proverbs. It did happen in the book of Acts. I can't say it's wrong. I, I just wouldn't do it myself. I, I, I feel, how can I make a major decision based on that? I, I need to know on the inside in, in my relationship with God. Uh, in the early days when I was saved, I tried a few times. I, I remember asking the Lord if I was supposed to pursue a certain thing or not. I, 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 I stood this card up on, on, a, uh, on, a, on a night table and it was really unstable. I said, Lord, when I wake up in the morning, if it falls to the left, it means this. If it's fallen to the right, it means that. And somehow it stayed up the whole night. I remember another time I just needed the word. I said, God, just speak to me. I'm just going to open the Bible at random. So I opened up to the blank page between the Old and New Testaments. That, that was enough for me to realize, okay, there are other ways that God will speak and communicate. So I'm not telling you you can't. I, I just wouldn't for the reasons just given. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks so much for joining us today on The Line of Fire. This is Michael Brown. And today, rather than what's weighing, rather than weighing in on the world around us with breaking news and things like that and kingdom commentary and special interviews, we're answering questions that have been posted in recent days on YouTube and Facebook that I thought you'd enjoy hearing answers to here on the line of fire. So don't call in, sit back and take it in. Enjoy these questions. If it raises issues for you, the answer I bring, if it raises an issue for you, by all means, contact us and tell us what your new question is as a result of our answers. Okay. Um, <clears throat> this is also on YouTube. I say also because just answer the YouTube question. Dr. Brown, Deuteronomy 13.5, false prophets and dreamer of dreams. How do you respond to a Jew who uses this passage to contradict Christianity? All right. It's a question we've often been asked. I do address it at some length in volume two of my series, Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus. So if you want to find out in depth, volume two, Answering Jewish Objections, Objections to Jesus, I address this question. Someone says, well, what's the question? Okay. Deuteronomy 13 says, if a prophet arises among you, a dreamer of dreams, and the thing they prophesy comes to pass, or they work a sign or a wonder, and it happens, and then they say, follow other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Don't listen to them. Don't do it. That's a false prophet. In fact, God is testing you. So the argument would be, it doesn't matter how many miracles Jesus worked, it's immaterial, because he said, follow other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known. He's a false prophet. Don't believe him. You're being tested. All right, so what's the big problem with that? Yeshua didn't say that. He didn't say follow other gods. He pointed to the one God, the one true God, period. He did not say follow other gods. You say, yeah, but he made himself into a God. No, we understand that God revealed himself through Jesus, just as at times in the Old Testament, he revealed himself in different ways. He revealed himself to Moses and earthly, excuse me, to Abraham in earthly form in Genesis 18. 
It could be he revealed himself to Jacob in earthly form in Genesis 32. He revealed himself in visible form where, where 74 Israelites saw him on Mount Sinai in Exodus 24. Uh, he reveals himself, for example, in Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel 1 in a vision where the prophets saw him in certain ways. Uh, it could be in Joshua 5, he reveals himself in earthly form. And, and the, the, the captain of the Lord's host tells Joshua, take your shoes off your feet. The place you're standing is holy ground. The exact same words used in Exodus 3, where the angel of the Lord bearing the presence of God tells Moses, take your shoes off your feet. The place where you're standing is, is holy ground. Sandals, of course, with the shoes they're wearing. Um, so he's not saying follow the gods. All of Yeshua's ministry, the ministry of Jesus, pointed to the Father, glorified the Father. And as a result of his healings and miracles, people glorified the Father. What we come to learn through reflection and understanding is that the Father reveals himself in a unique way through Jesus, who also bears the very divine presence of God. So we didn't say follow other gods. He didn't say that. So that's, that's the first thing. Here's the second thing. He rose from the dead. He said, well, that was another test. Whoa, 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 hang on, hang on. That would mean, that would mean, I had this very conversation with, with some uh, budding Jewish apologists in, in my studio here a few months back. That would mean, as one of them pointed out, that the Jewish leadership rightly rejected Jesus as the Messiah, but then God raised him from the dead to vindicate him as the Messiah. Wouldn't that be undoing the thing that they did? Wouldn't that be saying what you did is wrong? And then he ascends to heaven. So <laughs> how far is God going to go to test and to trick? Not only so, he does these things in fulfillment of scripture. So Deuteronomy 13 doesn't apply. If he said worship idols, if he said follow other gods, that would be one thing entirely. But he didn't. He pointed everyone to the one true God. Um, <clears throat> okay. Here's a valid core question. Why does Christ say, I never knew you if he did? All right, so Matthew 7 is what you'd be referring to. Matthew 7, beginning in verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father. And he says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, haven't we done, in your name, haven't we done mighty works and, and prophesied and driven out demons and all this? And, and he'll say, away from me, you workers of lawlessness, or you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. I never knew you. So there are two different ways to understand this. One was there is an ancient Jewish formula of excommunication that may well have been used in Jesus' day. And in this ancient formula of excommunication, you would say, I never knew you. In other words, when putting someone out of the fellowship, they had been part of the fellowship. They were part of your community as Jews, all right? They were a leader among you, whatever it is. When you were excommunicating them, either permanently or temporarily, language you could use said, I never knew you. So in Hebrew, lo yudatiha. So if that's the case, it could well be that that formula was present at that time, and that was a formula of excommunication, all right? So that's the, the first possible way of reading it. The second way of reading it is they never were believers. They were deceived. They were self-deceived. They operated under demonic power. They never really did work miracles. They never really did drive out demons. They never really did prophesy in Jesus' name. They thought they did, but they did what they did by human and or demonic power. 
So they never knew the Lord. They were never disciples. And therefore he said, away from me, I never knew you. But, but here's, here's the, the big point. This is the major point that we need to make here. All right. His emphasis is that the miracles are not proof of right relationship with God. Just because someone operates in the miraculous doesn't mean they're right with God. It could be God genuinely gifted them and that gift still operates even though they're in a bad place. It could be that they're using just manipulative ways and it's human psychology and and sleight of hand. It could be they're operating in in demonic power. But even if they were operating in what seemed like divine power, think of Judges 16, where Samson sleeps with a Philistine prostitute. Here's the leader in Israel. So he's sleeping with a prostitute. That's forbidden. He's sleeping with a pagan prostitute and uh, of the enemy. That's absolutely obscene and terrible. And yet when the Philistines surround where, where, where he's sleeping in the middle of the night, he gets up and he, he carries the gates of the city out on his own shoulders. The gift still operated in him, even though he was in sin and disobedience because he hadn't done that one thing, cut his hair. And although it's speaking about God's promises to Israel, Romans eleven twenty nine 29 is still relevant. It says that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So it could well be that someone receives a gift and then turns away from God and the gift still operates and they're self-deceived by it. And they think, well, I must be right with God. Now, lest that seem too outlandish to you, remember that every one of us on a certain level has a relationship with God that doesn't depend on our own works. In other words, here I'm charismatic Pentecostal, I speak in tongues. I can speak in tongues when I'm in a spiritual frame of mind and when I'm not, because it's something that God gave me. And if you can speak in tongues, you, you could do it when you're happy or when you're sad. Just like now, volitionally, I could start to speak in Hebrew. In that case, I'm manufacturing the words like I'm in English. In tongues, I'm not manufacturing the words. But here, how about this? How about you, you, you just had a miserable time. You just, maybe God's really anointed you to be an evangelist and to win the lost. And you've got a special grace, you know, winning the lost and reaching out and things like that. And, and you just get into a fight with your spouse and you're in a foul frame of mind and you start talking to someone, find out they're lost. And next thing you just feel, I got to share Jesus with you. You feel that grace and anointing on you. It's not because of you. It's God's grace operating. It's not, it doesn't mean that you're right with God. I led someone to the Lord. That means I don't have to apologize to my spouse. No, no, no. Relationship with God is relationship with God. Saying I'm a miracle worker has nothing to do with relationship with God. Being able to be used in the gifts has nothing to do with relationship with God necessarily. It might flow out of a wonderful, deep, beautiful, rich relationship with God, or it might simply be a gift you have. I'm a talker. I'm a debater. I, I could debate all kinds of issues. I, I'm, I'm often in, in our school of ministry assigned with taking the position opposite to what I believe. I mean, it's been a fun thing students have done with me for years, whereas they'll prepare for a certain subject and, and then come in. And the moment of the debate is when I find out what the subject is. And, and then I'm always given the position I don't agree with. So now I have to, on the spot, debate a position I don't agree with. And, and, and argue it passionately and try to rebut the position I do agree with just as a theological exercise and a you know, way to learn and, you know, for the students and things like that. But the point is, I, I could win the debate and be on the wrong side of the issue if the people debating me aren't strong enough. And I've, got a, I've just got a mind that works a certain way, is able to do these things. But that doesn't mean I'm in right relationship with God. It doesn't mean my prayer life is solid. So that's the big lesson here. Even if miracles come through you, 
don't let that take the place of personal relationship with God and obedience to the word of God. That's the big thing here. You're going to call Jesus Lord, then live as if he's Lord. That's the big, big lesson here. Uh, oh, this is, <laughs> this is a great one from Lee. These fake doctors like Brown and these biblical scholars, they are erasing Phoenicians from our history books, yet they are writing in English. Its alphabet came from Phoenicians. Lee, buddy, wake up, sir. I'm doing the opposite. Oh, also, I'm not a fake doctor as far as PhD is an earned PhD. But buddy, have you no clue that I've explained dozens of times that the alphabet we use in English goes back to the Greek alphabet, which comes from the Phoenicians? I, are you unaware of that? S seriously? I, tell you what, go to the digital library, askdrbrown.org, all right? ASKDRBrown.org. It's free, okay? Go to the digital library. You'll click on it right on the homepage and type in the word paleo, P-A-L-E-O. And that'll take you to our video teaching where we debunk the idea that pictographic meaning still adhere to the Hebrew text in the Hebrew Bible. And we explain where the Hebrew script came from and how it's adaptation of the Phoenician script and how the Greeks also got it, which is why Hebrew starts with Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalit, and Greek starts with Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta. Oh, and English is A, B, C, D. And our English A if you just round the top a little and take that A line, capital A, right? So like an upside down V, just round the top a little and then take that the line through it and extend it and just go up a little. Kind of looks like an ox head. Yeah, because that's what the original letter Aleph stood for, was an ox head. Uh-huh. So Lee, before you post a nasty comment, educate yourself, man. No reason to post your name on a comment and embarrass yourself publicly. So I hold nothing against you, buddy. No hard feelings, but get educated before you post. Otherwise, you're the only one that comes out looking bad. And I don't want that for anybody who watches the show and listens to the broadcast. We'll be right back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. All right, we've got one segment to go on this special broadcast where we are answering questions that were posted on YouTube and Facebook. And, and I started the beginning of the hour answering at length a, a very sensitive question from a pastor but some that, that others have faced as well. So we took some time to answer that. I want to answer a couple of last questions here. Don't call in. Uh, we normally have our phone lines open, but not today. And as far as all the major news happening around us, you may be looking to me for commentary. Well, we've always got relevant articles coming out. As, as Normally, I write a new article every day during the week, sometimes another on the weekend. The other day, I think we published three new articles the same day. I just had so much on my heart and different subjects, but we're always doing our best to provide commentary for you to be your voice 
of moral, cultural, spiritual revolution, to be your voice of moral sanity and spiritual clarity, to, to help provide resources for you and to help help you think things through, to help help you think through. Oh man, I'm stuck on that. I better move on. To help you better answer the questions that come your way, to equip you, to serve you. Here we go. Forget the help, help stuff. Okay. So if we can do that through our articles, through our radio broadcasts, then we're blessed because we're being a blessing to you. If you in turn can stand with us, pray for me and our team and support us financially, that's wonderful because our goal is not to get rich. Our goal is to reach more people. If you, if you wrote us a check for a million dollars today, it wouldn't go in our pockets. It would go right back out to touch more people, to get on our radio stations, to produce more outreach videos for Israel, uh, to, to get more materials out to serve the body and, and simply to expand our reach to help our missionaries serving all around the world. So stand with us. Go to askdrbrown.org, A-S-K-D-R-Brown.org. Click on donate. Become a monthly supporter if you can. If you can support us with a dollar a day or more, uh, that would be awesome, $30 or more per month. So ask yourself, is our ministry too worth a dollar a day? I, I hope it is. I hope it's worth much more than that. Some of you are able to help. Some it's a step of faith. Some can help with 10 times that amount on a monthly basis. If everyone does their part, there'll be no lack on our end and we'll be able to serve more and more people and reach more and more people. I don't mind taking the hits, friend. Bring them on. I get attacked from death wishes to, to hateful stuff to junk. I'm called to, to, to be a tip of the spear in that regard. I, my head is called to be the, the tip of the battering ram smashing on a wall. It's my calling. There's grace to do it. And, and, and we've got great prayer support and, and, and the Lord is with me. So I'm, I'll take the hits. We'll take the hits being on the front. We don't mind the controversy. We'll wait in. We'll, we'll get on the hot seat for you and represent you before the secular media and, and the world and seek to be a voice for you. If you hold our hands up with prayer and finances, then we can just better do it, reach more people, have less pressure to do it. And, and my, my great burden in terms of what we have to carry is not the fear of what's going to happen to me, not the spiritual attacks that come our way, not the attacks on media and social media that come our way, not the garbage we have to deal with. No, no, it's just paying the bills, having the funds to increase the outreach to reach more and more people. I didn't plan on saying any of this, but let me say this last thing. The harvest is, is ripe to reach Jewish people. And we have wonderful open doors. We just need a little more help to walk through some of those doors and to get things done. So join us today, askdrbrown.org. Click on Donate. And when you do, we, we send you a book to encourage you and stir your heart. When you become a Torchbearer, a monthly supporter, every month we send you a powerful new audio message. Every month you get an insider prayer letter. We also have some great online classes we've done on video and uh, audio. You get to watch those, listen to those as many times as you want. Uh, they're there for you. And then you even get a 15% discount on our online bookstore. So yeah, we bless you back in many ways. And if you're coming to Israel, if you, if you still arrange it to come to Israel on our February trip, we've still got some seats left uh, and some room left. If you do it, you get almost a year's funds of credit towards the trip of, of your giving towards us as a torchbearer. So uh, stand with us today. You'll be blessed. I believe you'll have a great reward in heaven as we share together. And every victory report that I give you on the air, when I go to India in December, God willing, for the 26th time, you'll be going with me. When I, when I stand up to, to debate a rabbi, you'll be standing there with me. Uh, when I'm on TV talking to secular media, you'll be there with me. So thank you. Thank you. And for those that can help with a one-time gift, that'd be a great blessing too. 
It really would. Okay, I've got a couple more Facebook questions I want to answer. Lily, why in various stories does Jesus command people to not tell anyone about their miracle? For example, Matthew 8, 4. It's strategic. It's totally strategic, especially at the beginning of his ministry. He knew that there were times for the whole world to see his miracle power. He knew that there would be a time for everyone to recognize that he was the Messiah. But if things were broadcast prematurely, if they began to go out and tell everyone, this is he's the Messiah, he's the Messiah. The expectation, the attempt to crown him, the attempt to, to go ahead of schedule, he needed time with his disciples. He needed time to pour into them. He needed time to teach and preach and bring Israel to a place of responsibility and accountability. He needed that time in God's mercy, giving people time to repent. This was all important. And if, if at the wrong time, a miracle announcement started going out, he healed out of love and compassion and to, to demonstrate the heart of the Father and as, as a sign of his messianic, uh, re, uh, messianic credentials. But his mercy moved him to heal someone but that was not the time to announce it to the whole world. He wouldn't be able to stay in that village. He, he, he'd have to go prematurely. He couldn't even teach and preach first because the crowds would be so great. And, and then again, saying, you're the Messiah, you're the Messiah, when it was premature, no, there was a right time to reveal it. There's a right time for even more miracles. And you say, well, right from the start, he was working miracles and demons were leaving people and so on. Yeah, but not all of it was public. Not all of it was large scale. So he did the public large scale miracles whenever it was appropriate to do so. And when he healed someone and it wasn't the appropriate time for that person to share it because he had more work to do before getting swarmed, then he knew the right time and the right strategy. And the biggest thing is though, it was premature to declare him as Messiah. He needed that to build and to come at the right time. Um, Timothy, uh, Okay, you know, I, I answered this in a Facebook chat the other day. I guess Timothy missed it because I'm seeing it come up again. Have you read a book called Christ the Healer by F.F. Bosworth? If so, what's your opinion of it? Could you recommend it to fellow believers? Oh, yeah, it's a classic. Uh, you know, F.F. Bosworth helped disciple A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer, believing in the gifts and power of the Spirit for today. You may not have known that. Yeah, but he did. Uh, yeah, so F.F. Bosworth, who was a Pentecostal leader, helped disciple A.W. Tozer, but his book, Christ the Healer, is a classic. I might not agree with every line through the book, but it's a classic. It's recommended. I used it as a textbook many years ago. Uh, T.L. Osborne wrote a book called Healing the Sick that took some of the material, or, or let's say in his own way, stated similar material. Uh, I shouldn't say took it in his own way, took similar material from scripture, and then had lots of miracle stories in that. So I, I, I read those were some of the early books that I read on healing. Yes. Yeah, so by all means, read it. There was a question I saw uh, from Tom uh, that asked in Isaiah 9, 6, how can the Messiah be called everlasting father? Uh, it, it doesn't mean that he is the father as oneness Pentecostals would wrongly think, but either aviad in Hebrew means father of eternity, meaning possessor of eternity, creator of eternity. So, so it's simply a matter of him being called eternal or Aviad, father forever. As the king, he would be the father of the people. All right. So father's used in many different ways scripturally, and the king was certainly a father to the people. So it could have that meaning, but he's clearly a son that's being born in the passage, right? 
Um, okay. I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm going to answer a second question from Joshua. Uh, with the many laws that are prescribed for Israel and the Tanakh, like the book of Exodus, Leviticus, etc., for us believers today, how do you differentiate between those laws that were only for Israel, like the dietary laws, and those that are for us today, Ten Commandments laws against homosexuality, incense, etc., and able to explain that to unbelievers? The simple principle is this. It's really simple. If the laws are for everybody, either the Old Testament will tell us or the New Testament will repeat them or both. Got that? Either the Old Testament will tell us or the New Testament will repeat it or both. So when it comes to laws against homosexual practice, it's not just Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20. It's that this is reiterated in the New Testament. It's reiterated by things Jesus says. It's reiterated explicitly in what Paul wrote. So you have the witness of Moses, Jesus, and Paul telling us that. What about incest? This is a great argument to make, by the way. If you ask someone, do you believe it's wrong for a brother and sister to have sex or a father and child to have sex? And the vast majority of people would say, yes. Okay. Well, if you're a Christian, what do you base it on scripturally? Well, the primary law is you have in Deuteronomy, but the longest section is Leviticus 18. Well, if you say Leviticus 18 was just for Israel, then what is your scriptural basis for in, uh, prohibition of incest? And it's not addressed explicitly in the New Testament. It's possible porneia can have that meaning maybe in Acts 15, but that's not the primary meaning of the word. So it's not addressed explicitly in the New Testament. Leviticus 18 says that God judged the Canaanites because of these sins, which included adultery, which also included uh, bestiality, which also included homosexual practice. They're, they're all there in Leviticus 18, or sacrificing a child to the god Molech. So these are listed in Leviticus 18. And Leviticus 18, start from the beginning, go right to the end. It says, God drove out the Canaanites because of these sins. And if you commit these sins also, he'll drive you out. The land will vomit you out as it vomited out the Canaanites. So that means it's for everybody. So either the Bible will explicitly tell you, like Genesis 9, 6, the prohibition against murder, that remains a prohibition. It was given to Noah for the inhabitants of the world. It's repeated through the Bible and in the New Testament. Either the Old Testament will tell you explicitly, this is for everybody, like Leviticus 18, the way it ends, or it'll be repeated in the New Testament or both. All right, with that, gotta go back with you tomorrow.